This is a Suno India production and you're listening to Cyber Democracy. The Indian government launched Arogya Setu app saying that it could be an effective solution to combat COVID-19. Lately, the terms contact tracing and disease surveillance are being used widely. What exactly is health surveillance? How is it different from police and intelligence surveillance? Dr. Solani Ved, who is a public health professional, and Siddharth Dev, who is the Policy and Parliamentary Counsel for Internet Freedom Foundation, joins us to help us understand public health surveillance, contact tracing, and data during a public health emergency. In this and the next episode of Cyber Democracy, you will hear Suno India editor Padma Priya and Cyber Democracy host Srinivas Kodali discussing surveillance used for public health, contact tracing and the role of technology, especially apps, that is increasingly used for solutions during the COVID-19 pandemic. So Nali, you know, we hear a lot of uh, conversation and contact tracing seems to have become the new favorite phrase for a lot of the people now, especially when they're also talking about Arugya Setu. Can you tell us what contact tracing means and who does it? How are people trained to look into this? And what are some of the added layers of complexity when it comes to contact tracing, when it comes to a pandemic like this and with a virus where there is so much unknown? I'm going to begin with a disclaimer. So public health is very vast and things like surveillance, contact tracing, they come under the domain of epidemiology. Everybody who's trained in public health does do some epidemiology. And then there are some who go on to specialize in the study of patterns of disease, patterns of disease outbreaks, and things like epidemics, pandemics, outbreak investigations, and these are epidemiologists. So I don't claim to be one. Basically, whenever there is a disease outbreak, there are different methods. Let me go back to surveillance first. Surveillance comes from a French word, which means to watch over, not watch over in the sense of big brother, where I would interpret it as catching hold of people who have done something wrong. In public health, the purpose is to help people. So in public health surveillance, the objective is to be of service to people, to save lives, uh, to reduce disease. It is not to criminalize, ideally not to criminalize and not to arrest and detain and do all those things, but to understand how disease is spreading and how to protect people. So the very direction towards which public health surveillance is aimed is very different from you know, other kinds of law enforcement type of surveillance things. And in surveillance, not in disease surveillance, and when I'm using surveillance, I'm talking from a public health perspective, we don't need to monitor everything There are certain diseases which the health departments mandate, which need to be monitored. And so in India, we have the Integrated Disease Surveillance Program, and they have a list of diseases which uh, have to be reported. And when we talk about surveillance, there is active surveillance, which means uh, when the information is actively sought by the health department, they will contact the Uh, districts, the health facilities, and say, can you tell us if you have seen this and how many cases of this you have seen? And then there is passive surveillance. So there are certain diseases that are automatically notifiable. So things like cholera, typhoid, 
any cases of a type of paralysis which is seen in polio. Uh, so these, all of these have to be reported mandatorily, even things like dog bites, uh, snake bites. So this is passive surveillance. It's just continuously part of the program. Then you have seasonal surveillance, you know, so things like influenza-like syndromes. You know, you don't have to do it throughout the year. When it's the season, you're required to report. And then there is something called syndromic surveillance, which means you're not reporting a particular disease, but you see a certain type of clinical picture, a certain group of symptoms. And if you see those, you're supposed to report them. And then there's also anything that is unusual, which does not come in a regular clinical picture is supposed to be reported. And that's how something like a new uh, virus or a new epidemic is initially detected because some clinicians will notice that they're seeing something which they haven't previously seen. So surveillance systems, public health surveillance systems are prevalent throughout the world. They're all the time present there. Contact tracing comes into play when a disease outbreak is reported. Say, for example, there's a cholera outbreak. So you want to go and figure out where did it begin. And it's very unglamorous. It's a group of people. I'm not really sure what is being done currently in COVID, but usually it would be set up by somebody with some epidemiological experience, maybe not necessarily fully trained in epidemiology, but would have some prior experience. There would usually be a community member to build trust. So you will hear me saying a lot about trust. There could be district administration plays a major role. A local administration plays a role. It's not just the health departments. And we may need some level of, you know, police personnel also present, especially in the current situation where trust is negative. And then we are also including ASHA workers and other types of health workers who do contact tracing, which can become an issue because then there are other jobs, other activities, regular health programs suffer. So you have this team which first identifies an index case and then they go ask that person to list out and to remember who all they've been in contact with. And then they will go and contact each of those people. And so it's unglamorous. It is filling forms. There is probably some digitalization now. And it is basically door to door, knocking on doors. There are also other ways, which are telephone. So you could also do uh, telephonic contact tracing if you want to avoid door to door if it's too much. So that, that's about it. So that's how contact tracing would work. In, in a situation that we are in today, what are some of the, and I'm talking at the ground level, because I think it's important for us to also realize that beyond technology, there is so much happening at the ground level and public health is a lot about being ground up than being top down. So in that scenario, when there are say asymptomatic carriers of disease, like it seems to be the case with COVID, what is then the added sort of challenge and nuance there when it comes to contact tracing? And could an app help sort of, I don't know, fill some sort of a gap here? I think applications are here to stay. I don't know, there are already, I don't know how many, 50 million, 10 million downloads of this app. It will stay, it will be used. I think there is some utility. You can have some automated system. You can enter your symptoms and they can tell you if you're high risk, low risk, and you should contact somebody. So I think technology has its place and its use but it is not a replacement. And we have to be very, very careful about what are the risks and what are the possible harms of a technology solution. I would like to bring in Siddharth now, uh, Siddharth of Internet Freedom Foundation. 
you have been working a lot in terms of the privacy implications of these corona apps that are coming up and iff has also raised certain concerns regarding this can you tell us what are some of your concerns so the concerns i suppose and can be divided largely into two buckets i would say one is of course legal uh, legal and institutional and the second is of course the design of the app itself now coming to something like the proliferation of apps that we're seeing not just with the arogya setu app but like state level apps as well is the fact that you know there is no consistency it's essentially an example of technological solutionism so what i mean by that is the fact that quickly states and the center are coming out with these solutions without uh, really any sort of uh, discourse on the checks and balances and safeguards that must be integrated all of that stems from the fact that india lacks a cohesive legal framework to regulate government's ability to restrict people's personal privacy when it is in fact necessary in a democratic society now without getting lost in the legalese per se when it comes to any sort of restriction to the right to privacy a government has an onus even in emergency situation to satisfy certain thresholds the first is that any sort of activity which restricts people's personal privacy must be in accordance with an actual legal regime where there are clearly defined provisions which state that it is under these conditions that a restriction can take place to someone's right to privacy that in itself is missing within india and that uh, by default sort of we're stuck in a paradigm where india is uniquely disadvantaged now on top of that even when you have a legal regime let's say in this case we don't have one there is a heightened onus on the government of india i would say to justify any restriction to the right to privacy based on certain principles of necessity and proportionality now before i get into that when it comes to like responding to a public health crisis itself our supreme court has said that yes you can use people's health records and related information to respond to a public emergency or a health crisis like the corona virus but nevertheless there is an onus on the state that when it's making these restrictions to people's personal <laughs> privacy the state must nevertheless protect people's anonymity so that is a first level obligation on the state which a lot of these government apps are not satisfactorily doing in itself now at a second deeper layer of analysis we need to look at necessity so when you're looking at necessity you need to look at it at two levels first is any sort of purpose which is legitimate or necessary in a democratic society there protecting public health during a crisis fit but then there's a second layer of necessity where you have to show that this particular type of intrusion into someone's personal privacy will actually be efficacious or effective to a government response to a necessary or an emergency situation now with a lot of these government apps or most of these government apps they've just been deployed any without any actual empirical justification of the necessity threshold which is that that you are trying to show that this solution that we're building is actually going to effectively respond to the public health crisis at hand now that in itself is a difficult thing for most of these contact tracing apps or any of these apps to justify because at the end of the day contact tracing even globally speaking is an experimental technology 
so for instance in other democratic societies like in europe before even getting into the actual building of the software or the underlying systems they're having a dialogue as to how can we inbuild safeguards before you even start building the system so for instance the european parliament is saying that before you start building any application or underlying system to use technology to respond to the coronavirus you have to be able to align that with people's right to privacy you have to be able to satisfactorily justify a proof of concept that proof of concept must show that your uh, technological intervention like an app is actually efficacious based on available data that can model the possible success scenarios you know and then at a second level once you establish necessity you need to satisfy proportionality now what that means in a nutshell is you need to be able to show to the public that if there are these different alternatives that you have to responding with technology or with an intervention which restricts privacy but is still uh, responding to the public health crisis at hand that in itself is proportionate or the least restrictive measure that you've chosen so there is an onus to show that look we've considered these three four alternatives and then this is the least restrictive measure now when you even look at the way that the government has gone about let's say the arogya setu app it's sort of putting the cart before the horse now what i mean by that is they've already in a very short period of time rolled out the app let's say it started development 19th 20th march by april 2nd it was deployed now in comparison on april 2nd or 3rd they came out with a notification saying that we set up a government committee towards building a citizen app to respond to the coronavirus now shouldn't it logically flow that first you set up the committee the committee analyzes the situation and then determines what the technological response is so that just linking those facts together in itself tells you that there is a consideration within government to expand the scope or the capabilities of this arogya setu application and that in itself contradicts what is known as the principle of purpose limitation and that sort of embedded or intrinsically linked to the proportionality principle now in all of that another layer or challenge that india faces with any sort of attempt by government to restrict people's informational privacy is that we don't have robust institutions to hold each other accountable ideally there should be independent oversight mechanisms where the government has to periodically justify look we're satisfying the proportionality threshold and we're also by the way being effective in terms of the deployment of the technology and then that oversight mechanism should ideally be able to make an independent decision and based on that whether you continue deploying a particular solution or not i was just curious maybe dr ved can answer a particular doubt of mine is that when it comes to something like the integrated disease surveillance program and uh, based on my legal analysis of it i was just curious what are the sort of privacy safeguards that one needs to embed when you're trying to undertake disease surveillance so that people's uh, informational privacy or their personal details are protected as best as possible i can't speak specifically about the idsp but generally we talk of personal identifiers and uh, so that would be something like i think when you talk about anonymization 
I think when the records are entered for certain diseases where you may need an outbreak investigation, you would need to enter the names and other details of the patient. But for certain things, you would just need number of deaths, uh, etc. The information will go into the system, but then what are we doing with it? You know, so in the current scenario, what are we doing? We are stamping people's hands. We are putting posters outside people's doors. And initially for many people, you know, in public health in India, the conversation was, you know, this is unthinkable. Why are people being stamped? And in fact, but now that seems a little harmless compared to where we've moved so far, you know, within a span of like a month and a half, two months, that stamping hand seems like a lesser evil uh, than, you know, an app which has been downloaded by 50 million, 50, I don't know what's the latest number, you know, for all I know, it may be harmless, but I don't know. I would actually like to bring in Srinivas at this uh, point because Srinivas is someone who works a lot in privacy. Srinivas, the Arogya Setu app and the other uh, apps that are coming around COVID being put out by, say, different state governments, the authorities are using location tracking on phones to identify, say, these COVID cases where they are. What does this mean in terms of our digital rights? And are we at some level compromising our privacy for inconvenience and at what level do you think the compromise has now happened in India vis-a-vis -vis uh, these apps? The issue with privacy is it's potential harm that you can get, right? It's not necessarily that your information is out there. It's okay sometimes. But the issue is whether that information being out, whether that information being collected from you is going to harm you in ways that you can't imagine. And we've seen that even without information being out during any crisis, like any emergency, not necessarily healthcare, people panic. And what people do during these panic situations is something no one can predict. During this whole crisis, we have seen that all the data that was collected from people who have landed from abroad, who have come back, uh, people who were known to be quarantined by the state have somehow leaked to the resident welfare associations, right? Nobody knows how the data has come, but you suddenly have citizen polices, armchair uh, epidemiologists or armchair doctors going and policing people, locking them up, and not necessarily harming them directly, but they are causing them quite a bit of trouble. Privacy is not always about informational. We don't know how it is. I mean, even when the Supreme Court defined it, uh, part of the judgment, it was very abstract, right? When it comes to our rights, it's a very complex situation. People who are building some of these solutions, people who are, whether it's doctors, whether it's epidemiologists, or even the IT companies, volunteers, so-called uh, startups who are building these apps, really do not understand it. And there is a reason why this is happening, because we do not actually have a framework or a law which says that, oh, these things are allowed. Even during an emergency, I will allow certain forms of data collection, right? And within the scope that these particular individuals will have access to it, they'll be used for only this purpose. Now, what we are witnessing here is that you have the police providing healthcare response not necessarily the doctors who are doing it. Well, the mandate for police is completely different. When you give police information, the first thing they do is they'll find out 
everything about this person and they will try to analyze if this person is someone who should be put inside a jail that's their thinking and that's what they've been trained to that's not what doctors do doctors try to understand who the person is and whether that person needs care and what form of care based on their again their personal data their age their gender which is very important for doctors healthcare professionals to know who these people are data in itself being collected is not always strong and privacy in a very abstract sense can't be explained but it's important that the government defines those regulatory frameworks even now the government's bringing ordinances rules and acts saying that oh we got the epidemics act we are going to do a bunch of things but nowhere it has even brought the basic privacy regulations that we were supposed to get 3 years ago when the supreme court judgment on privacy has come i want to bring in uh, dr sonali here because of a point that shrinivas has very briefly touched upon do you think a pandemic like this changes the fundamental nature of the relationship between say a doctor and a patient and does say the a public health official sitting in a director or a department of public health now have more say in say okay we will reveal certain details about this patient and this is the reason why we are doing it so do you think that fundamental nature has in itself changed and is this is this how it is during pandemics so i think there are changes can't comment on whether it's a very fundamental change or something that's lasting or not there is a change in the sense of again the trust and the fear issue you know is this patient telling me their right travel history is this patient telling me their contact history and there are reports from clinicians that people are not disclosing there's so much stigma and discrimination that has become attached to this plus patients are also now afraid that if they tell their history correctly will they get the medical care they need for the condition that they have come right so if i've come for a fractured arm will i get to see an orthopedic doctor if i tell them that i live in a certain locality which is a hot spot there is an issue of mistrust on both sides there have been cases of neighbors discouraging people from going to the hospital because they are afraid that the person goes and something happens and then the whole area is put under quarantine so there are a lot of these dynamics playing out uh, which we still uh, do not fully understand you know this is not a linear system this is a very complex dynamic social system in play right now and we don't fully understand the complexities of it uh, there are definitely changes both patients and health workers nurses we must consider nurses they are the most exposed um, dynamics are changing there needs to be much much more effort on rebuilding trust than on making it a technology issue it is not a technology issue it is a social issue and uh, this is something that we have forgotten again and again even in history if we think about the term technology more broadly uh, we think of it as scientific application towards something practical you know to help society or whatever right now we are very technology focused so we are thinking about vaccine we are thinking about ventilators we are thinking about apps all of these are technologies we are not talking enough about the social system and its interplay and the socio economic interplay we haven't talked about equity right how many people have smartphones 
India has one of the worst gender divides on smartphone, uh, on mobile access. Let's not even talk about smartphones. I think around less than 40% of women have access to even a mobile phone. That too, it is borrowed in a lot of cases. And even if they have it, their ability to do even slightly complex tasks like sending an SMS or using Facebook is much less than the equal ability for men. I moved, drifted a little away from your question, but uh, we really need to think about issues of equity, social issues, gender issues when dealing with this whole dynamic. It is not a technology problem. There is no one ring to rule them all. It is not something that's amenable to one app. I want to make a quick jump to Siddharth from, you know, this very important point that uh, Sonali has raised. One of the things that we are seeing quite a bit, you know, whether it is COVID or not, is that there seems to be a lot of push for technology solutions. And as we're seeing this more instead of, say, a healthcare response. Like you said, you know, there have been many important steps that have been missed even before the apps are sent out into the public, you know, whether it is in terms of assessment and, and everything. Why do you think we as a nation are moving more towards a technology for solution for every uh, problem that we seem to have, whether it is distribution of food, uh, distribution of ration, or, you know, now in, a, in COVID. Why do, you, why do you think we have become this nation of let's bring in more technology? I think one way to like just think about it is, okay, I'm going to break down technology into two streams. One is information and communication technologies where data and so on is involved. And then, of course, there are the technologies that uh, Dr. Sonali was referring to, like the development of a vaccine. Now, if you wanted to just juxtapose these two paradigms, there is clearly in one regard, the world is intimately becoming familiar with, let's say, the timeline for vaccine discovery and eventual deployment to market. Mostly people are agreeing that it will take around 18 months and then we can think about it reaching market or meeting production meeting demand over a much longer horizon. But 18 months till it hits the market. Now, why is it going to take that long is because in this discipline, which is biomedicine, there are a number of checks and balances which have been inbuilt through regulation and laws itself to ensure quality assurance. Then, of course, there are ethical considerations with respect to trials and testing and so on and so forth to ensure that whatever that product is that hits the market, it ensures certain uh, safeguards essentially in the process and the actual eventual product. Now, th that sort of ethos is also there in a suite of other sectors and disciplines like, let's say, automobile manufacturing. Again, there are a number of checks and balances that any developer must comply with. You can even think of it in the context of social science disciplines like psychology as well, where you need to like, before you administer a study, you need to be able to satisfy your proposal against an ethics board, let's say. Now, in contrast, technology or information communication technologies are dealing in a, are operating in a minefield which, where there is a great degree of immaturity when it comes to embedding safeguards, checks and balances with respect to privacy, ethics, etc from the design stage itself, which is why it is so easy for, let's say, the government of India to build out the Arogya Setu app and within 13 days, it's already hit and available for download on the Play Store itself. Basically, without those checks and balances, it becomes a lot easier for uh, technological solutionism from a framework perspective. Now, from an optics perspective, 
if we were to just dial back to like let's say three four weeks ago as to which were the most effective countries being marketed as oh these countries did well in terms of even after it the initial outbreak they contained the spread and the answers were taiwan china south korea and singapore and those countries have deployed a suite or a bouquet of responses right and they aren't just technological it is testing uh, aggressively increasing capacity with respect to hospital beds ppes and so on and so forth there are let's say five options but a government bureaucrat and if we just put him ourselves in their shoes they will try to see okay what can india replicate well the rest of them are really hard to replicate whereas this building of the technology in a timely and speedy manner is something that we can do and on top of that the metrics for growth are easy to measure because then you can say oh there are 50 million downloads 60 million downloads 70 million downloads it's a measure of progress quote and quote but whether it's effective or not that sort of gets lost somewhere or gets muddled up in the political narrative but from an optics standpoint i would say that it's just easier to deploy and then you can show to the public that look progress is being made whether progress or actual effectiveness with respect to responding to the corona virus itself is happening it's not something i don't think even the government can really answer at this stage because it won't have enough data to back that up similarly for instance the singapore app the trace together app which uh, was deployed a few weeks ago of course there are certain very interesting things about the technological deployment itself but there was a recent report this week that actual uptake by singaporean citizens has been modest at best and even the singapore government does not have enough information as to whether it's being successful so an alternative would have been okay if we're looking at the corona virus being something that the world has to deal with over a period of a couple of years minimum and you have set out a committee which is there for 3 months to be able to come out with its findings at the very least that process should be transparent and then whether you use a technology or not should come subsequent to the process itself i think that's a short way to like sort of look at why governments are doing this and of course the uh, the broader answer is again and srinivas sort of alluded to it in his answer as well is the fact that unlike countries like even the us which has the government privacy act of 1974 there is no legal mechanism to hold either the central government or state level governments accountable as such there is no, no legal measure which will say okay this is how you develop and then deploy an app or a technological system in fact there is a lot of convenience and flexibility given and the narrative is that you need that flexibility to be able to scale solutions but when you are given that flexibility if there are certain harms that accrue as a result rolling it back becomes a lot harder later and the thing is people will say no but what are the harms but the thing is you have to just keep in mind that when we're dealing with icts or information communication technologies they're intrinsically li- linked with people's civil rights and there are suite of civil rights therefore there is in fact a heightened onus to be able to do this in a manner either in compliance with the law or alternatively with enough safeguards and transparency and assurances made to the public that the government will not abuse this unfettered power and that sort of links back to what dr dr sonali was talking about which is the issue of trust that is something which is i feel missing at this stage and rather the government and other powerful actors may think about it as okay to 
push adoption and usage of these systems, we'll, we may have to go through the route of coercion instead. In the next episode, you'll hear more about the data collected for health surveillance, how the apps are working today and more. Thank you for listening to the episode of Cyber Democracy. You can listen to this podcast on sonoindia.in or any other podcast app of your choice. As independent producers, we rely on you, our listeners, to support us. So please visit the support page on our website sunoindia.in and contribute generously.